Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. I want to make a shout out to uh, Upper Yacht Race, too, sometime at the beginning. I got that on my notes as well. So whoever wants to talk okay. about it. Because there's actually I have a couple of interesting things to, to talk about about that. Yeah, I am, I'm super fired up that Ian won, but also kind of yeah. heartbroken that somebody won in a plastic boat. Yeah, interesting. Seems like a step backwards. <laughs> well, I don't. Most people racing. I don't know that anyone's raced like a full length glass boat in many, many. Well, Andrew McEwen's probably the last person to do that. Hey, we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. All right. Here we are. Hammer Factor Twenty Seven. Um, it's been a while since we've been on. We just had our ladies issue come out. It was very well received. Those guys did a great job. This isn't as easy as you may think. Um, first, I want to introduce Whitewater Legend, outspoken co-owner of Immersion Research. Like that outspoken. Yeah. Got that that's, from Shark Tank. That's sweet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and our surliest co-host, John Weld. Welcome back. Thank you. Now we have policy director for the Outdoor Alliance, North Fork Race champion and poker boss, Lewis Geltman, coming in from your out in Hood River, Lewis. I am. Welcome back, Lewis. It's a lovely SUP t shirt you're wearing today, Grace. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I had a, I'm working on a uh, I'm working on a, a Whitewater SUP show for the Travel Channel. I, I thought you guys would be stoked to hear about that. Yeah. <laughs> we went and shot on Friday up the Nolichucky. It was pretty badass. <laughs> yeah. Well, All right. Uh, All right. Let's get right into the show then. Uh, well. I, re- I think we're done. That's it. <laughs> Time to wrap it up. I could tell you about this kid, Cohen Atkins, crushing it on the Nolichucky on his board, but you guys wouldn't be interested. Um. Sure. John Well, no. you, you wanted to make an apology? <laughs> what is this all about? Okay. You know, Karen and I drive back from IR, and we have time to discuss many things, uh, mostly me and my shortcomings. And <laughs> one of my shortcomings, <laughs> evidently, is that she felt that I was it, maybe not – I came across as uh, condescending to Pat Keller uh, when we were talking about him being uh, designing the uh, Delta Five. Uh, so I want to make an apology to Pat right now, uh, if he if he felt that way. Oh, I think that's it. Just, I think you were just kidding. Of course, I was kidding. I think Pat's probably, in his own odd way, become one of the premier boat designers uh, in this country. Certainly, wouldn't you? Would you not agree? Oh, I'd agree. Yeah. Have you paddled the Delta Five? It's the Delta V. Delta V. <laughs> But it's okay to be the Delta Five. I haven't paddled the new one yet. I tried to get a hold of one. I was shooting the Whitewater Sup, and so I missed a day when I could have got one. Um, There's but, one here in Conference, so I'm going to paddle that thing. That's my that's my project for the week. Get out there. And so, yeah. before we move on into the show here, yeah. to recap, so you apologize that we're ending that conversation. To that's right. Uh, yeah, that's right. So, I'm trying to I'm trying to diffuse this. John Weld is a uh, you know is the D word. Let's keep the show. <laughs> let's just say, let's just say you're surly. <laughs> anyway, okay. let's talk. When are we going to do next week? 
because you guys are both going to be at the Outdoor Retailer Show, and yes. we're going to be doing some kind of live check-in, mainly one live check-in. What day is that going to happen? What, how are we going, what, yeah. what are we going to do there? Yeah, um, I don't know what we're going to do. I feel like OR is going to be a little lackluster this year without the IR booth to retreat to. It's kind of my <laughs> safe space when I get sick talking to people. I mean, it weld. <laughs> you, Grace, will sit in the corner and not talk Bitch. about kayaking for an hour. <laughs> I feel like we usually had some good conversations about like books or like what was in the New Yorker that month. Conversations, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know what we're gonna do. We'll we'll come up with something that'll be uh, moderately right, well, compelling. I think, I think we should look around and see what's going on. Uh, well, there's, there's going to be some paddle sports people there, so we can see what's going on with Kokotad and NRS is going to be there. Uh, I don't think Sweet's going to be there. Um, Confluence is not going to be there? Does that sound right? That's what I heard. I, I don't know. Fine. We'll see what's going on. I don't know. We'll, we'll let you know. Yeah, SUP, maybe, maybe SUP is taking over the entire show. Maybe it's just SUP now. As it should be. Right. That's <laughs> where all the growth is. <laughs> um, all right, so... Lewis, you were talking about, you just said there was so much crap going on. What is going on? Um, man, what's going on? We have this piece of legislation that hopefully is going to get introduced this week. That's something that I've been working on for years. Um, it's this, uh, this bill that Ron Wyden, senator from Oregon, has been working on called Recreation Not Red Tape. And it has... So you mean this is another one of Obama's last-minute midnight pieces of legislation he shoved through? when no one was looking in the last few hours of his presidency. Would that be it's correct? Gonna, it's going to end public property. It's going to take over private property. It's going to take away everybody's guns. So they have to paddle socks. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we're marching against, right? <laughs> Just to be clear. Yeah, I'm exactly. Sorry. We, uh, um, <laughs> yeah, so it's working on this piece of legislation that's going to get hopefully introduced this week. I can tell you guys more about it at a later date, but I know we've talked a lot about forest planning in the past, and if this pans out, it's going to basically help make sure that forest planning starts looking for potential new nat national recreation areas for places that you know have a lot of recreational value. So hopefully, this is going to be a way to you know protect more public land in a way that's sort of cognizant of our interests. Um, pretty fired up about that. A lot of kind of last minute wrangling to see, you know, how this thing gets out the door, but fingers crossed. Um, we just sent off a big letter last week about some of these uh, energy shenanigans that are going on at Department of Interior. I don't know if you saw that there was like an executive order from Trump about sort of clearing burdens for energy development and, Department of Interior has a secretarial order that is sort of aimed at implementing that, just kind of ramping up energy development, and we're sort of pushing back on that. That's going to be, I know, a little bit of a focus at Outdoor Retailer. Uh, the Access Fund is one of our member groups, the Climbers Advocacy Organization. They're doing a little postcard writing campaign. So if you feel like, you know, if you're at, if you're at OR and want to stop by Access Fund and drink a beer and write a postcard, those guys will catch you up on what's going on and I don't know, good thing you do to break up that 
process. <laughs> um, so this deregulation uh, thing, this is for, um, as I understand it, new development on public lands? Or that's on, right. Yeah, on public lands. Cool. So we were at Glacier. You know, we went on vacation the past couple of weeks. We were at Glacier for 10 days. Uh, I'd never been there before. And, you know, it it was breathtaking. Have you guys been there? I have not. Very briefly. I mean, every I, I probably took about 300 pictures. Every single one of them looks like a, like a Microsoft Windows screensaver. I mean, they're all <laughs> gorgeous, you know? And then, you know, sadly, we looked at a bunch of glaciers, and I had to point out to my kids that their kids will never see those glaciers because they're going to be gone in 15 years, uh, you know, never to be seen again, at least by, not by not anytime soon. So it was kind of a bittersweet moment for sure, but nonetheless, an astounding, astounding national park. I, I'd say the most beautiful place I've ever been. How did the, uh, how did the uh, Pisgah National Forest economic impact study thing go lewis did you oh, hear yeah let's talk about that about the so, results and everything that came in or i don't want to give you the number because i'm gonna misremember it but we have just we have a number just for climbing so let me stick a step back for a second outdoor alliance is working on forest planning for the nantahill and pisgah national forest in north carolina uh, Kevin Colburn at AW has been leading this charge. A bunch of folks from the uh, Sorba, I guess is the Southeastern mountain, bas- mountain biking group down there, Access Fund. And one of the things we've done for this forest planning effort down there is to uh, hire an economist to do an economic impact study of you know, the economic impacts of outdoor recreation on the Nantahale and Pisgah. And we sent out a survey to folks to fill out just sort of about your spending on outdoor recreation in, in those forests. And we've gotten the results back just for the climbing so far, I think. And it's like, I, I just, I can't even give you the number because I'm going to, I'm going to mess it up, but it's somewhere in the like 10 to $20 million range. So I think that by the time we actually add in everything else, it's going to be like, up around 50, I want to say. Just for the climbing portion. Well, no, for everything. For everything. Yeah. yeah but yeah. it's really cool, and I think we're pretty excited to do some more work with this guy, uh, James Maples. He's an economist from Kentucky, I think. Like, I know he'd done some uh, economic impact studies for the, like climbing on the Red River Gorge in Kentucky and uh, got a huge turnout. I know, Grace, you helped kind of get the word out on that, that study. And... Uh, it's cool. I think we're, we're excited to incorporate this stuff into our advocacy a little bit more. I mean, I don't know, you guys, as you do, uh, sort of poo-pooed the, uh, <laughs> the Outdoor Industry Association numbers because basically they're just so astronomical and they include so many things. And this is kind of kind of enable us to, you know, take that economic message down to a more uh, comprehensible level of specificity. So that's cool. We're we're stoked about doing that, and we're going to do we'll do some more of them. I think the I think the uh, the corporate speak for what you're talking about is a more granular level. Yes, more granular. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> try you try go. get with it. That's what we say in enterprise. Yeah, it was cool. And the I, the survey was cool. Like it was Dr. Maples and his team or whatever they put together. I mean, it was it wasn't bad to go through. Like the way it pointed you in different directions, and then. It kind of got the nuts and bolts, and then if you wanted to offer more, if, you know, <clears throat> specific information and whatnot, it all it all made good sense. So, 
Good on, good on you, Outdoor Alliance. And did you see we had some other emails of people sending in money to Outdoor Alliance list? Did I send you those? I'm not sure you did, man. That's <sighs> rad. Dude. Outdoor the Alliance camera factors raised well over seventy dollars. <laughs> Dude, I know we've got to be up to a hundred dollars with your fifty bucks weld. Right, I, I mean, took it back. <laughs> oh, that's right, something happened. <laughs> right. Those glaciers were glaciers uh, were right. shrinking a little too fast for your liking. <laughs> well, there you have it. Outdooralliance.org. Go sign up. Get on the newsletter. Um, incredible work as always, Lewis. And uh, yeah, dude, you're the man. You're the man. You guys want to hear about my Nirvana review? Yeah, let's hear it, man. You're kind of cutting in and out, dude. I don't know if it's your headphone moving out of your mouth or. Am I? Am I? He has a wireless headphone, which I which I have advised him against using, uh, but he rarely takes my advice. And I'm <laughs> sure that's the cul- the culprit. <laughs> what What did you guys hear from that last last go around? <laughs> <laughs> I love Jackson. <laughs> you guys are the surly. Like Hook <laughs> up a little bit, but I think that's what I heard. <laughs> so, do you guys want to hear my Nirvana review? Long story yes. short. Yes. So, Lewis, do you remember when you were? Are you ready for me, Weld? Yes. I'm surly bastard. I, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, apologize. I have an unconditional apology. All right. This is a Weld apology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what step is it in the 12 step thing where it's making amends it's going to be well it's like step one through nine that's it's <laughs> a lot of apologies uh, okay all right proceed so back to back to my review so you know how lewis you were poo-pooing about the stern yeah so i'm going to tell you i don't know what's going on back there in the stern so let me just tell you about my review so, got in the boat. It was uncomfortable. I felt like I was sitting really high up into it. It was uh, Steve Fisher's boat, and we were out there, and he was like, man, you, you may want to rip that padding out of it. So, first of all, I'm going to go right into poo-poo part. So, there's this super thick padding in, these, in the Jackson boats, or at least this one. I mean, it's like an inch thick. I'm like super long torsoed, so I felt like I was like basically standing up in it. So... Took that stuff out. All of a sudden, it felt better. Started cruising down. Got through the rapids. And by the time I got like two-thirds of the way in, I was really digging like the whole boat overall. But I'll tell you in particular what was really cool is you know how when you get a boat, you come off a drop or you're busting through a hole and it kind of rises up to go over the feature and then there's a point to where it lays back down? That, the stern on that boat released so fast from that kind of situation and you were just like coming through and you were instantly down moving it was a super cool experience so i'm giving that boat a big thumbs up all right so good for the green would you paddle the green with it yeah i mean it kind of ate up the green to be honest you know like it was like how about this how about the stikin would be a good stikin boat yeah i think it would be a great stikin boat I think it would be a great, I mean, it obviously. How about Royal Gorge? Yeah, I think it'd be great for a Royal Gorge. I think it'd be a good, it's like just a good class five running boat. It was. I All right, would you rather have a 9R or a Nirvana? <sighs> Man, I'll tell you. For a year. I'll tell you. You have so to paddle I, one or the other. So I've raved about the 9R. I'm a big fan of the 9R. The 9R has right. some of this kind of feeling, but the 9R, 
I was a little too narrow in it. Like I wasn't as comfortable in it and it didn't have as good of a kind of secondary stability. I think I'd probably take the Nirvana over the 9R. All right. There you go. That's a pretty resounding approval right there. I want to ask your guys' opinion. Where do you think that release in the back comes from? Where do you think it, where do you think it, of it, what causes it to sit down like that? I'd have to feel it to know. I don't know. I, mean, I yeah. know what you're saying, but I'm not exactly sure what form it's taking. Say if you're driving up on a dry boom and you're 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 talking like the boat's going to rock forward as you go off. Is that what you're talking about? Nah, just or, think of it as like a watery boof, or like you know somewhere where you're you're or there's like a big hole and you're kind of going through it. Yeah, like like slide to hole, and then like when you go up over the hole, and yeah, then like uh, it comes out flat, you know, and it's like the tuna one. The bow comes way up, but it has so much stern rocker that it kind of plows at that point. And then some of the newer boats with like less stern rocker come out a lot flatter and a lot faster. But I don't know about that. I mean, to me, I think it's sort of a combination of how much stern rocker there is and then where the break is on the stern rocker. Like, what do you think about that flat back? Do you think there's like a a planing aspect to there never being like a part where it's like the squared off end of the stern. Yeah. I mean, I think that probably helps keep the bow down a little bit. Like, I think if it comes to a really sharp point, it probably makes it easier to for the bow to come up. It's hard because it's like on the, on the one hand, it feels really nice when the bow comes up, but you want the boat to come out kind of flat too to carry the speed. It's sort of like a, a little bit of a balancing act, I think. Yeah, and it could be just the transition of, you know, I've just been paddling the party brat, so... It's mushy back, you know, it's going to slicey back yeah. in, you know, whatever, and then going directly to that. But that's that's a problem with testing these boats because, you know, it's like eating a piece of chocolate and then having like something really bitter afterwards. You know, it's hard to know what that tastes like. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? No, no, no. I hear so you. It, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I That's hear what you. I, like. I got that Letman boat. I, just, I, can't, I went from the from the BRAP right to that Letman boat, and it was just so different from the BRAP. It was hard for me to really get a feel for the boat in such a short period of time. Huh. Yeah, I have to say, watching everybody paddling that uh, at the at the North Fork race, it looked like it was working really well for people. And uh, I don't know, people seem stoked on it. I might have to might have to give it a whirl one of these days. Anyway, that's my view. Rip out the outfitting, it'll, it'll rock it for you. <laughs> All right, can we talk about the Upper Yacht Race? Is that appropriate? Yeah, let's go into the Upper Yacht Race. I, yeah, let's hear about it. Upper Yacht Race was last weekend. I don't know what number it is, 30, mid-30s, low-30s. It's been around forever. One of the older, quote-unquote, extreme races in the U.S. I, I don't think it's really extreme anymore, but, you know, good, solid Class 4-plus race. Takes about 30 minutes to do. Uh IR and Wilderness Voyagers put it together, and then our own Ian Van Stoutmeister uh, came home the winner. Although, as Lewis pointed out, it was in a plastic boat, right? Yeah, I mean, congrats, Ian. That's sick. I'm super fired up that he won. But yeah, yeah as, I, as I was saying before we started recording, it's a little disappointing that the winner was in a was in a green boat. What were the times? I mean, just based on its heritage as a race for wild water boats and long boats. Not to take anything away from Ian, because it's badass, and he definitely... I mean, Beeks was second in a wave hopper, right? So it's not like he... Uh, 
I mean, I'd like to think the only reason these guys weren't racing full-length glass boats is they're just hard to come by nowadays. You know, back in the day when I used to race, it seemed like five or six of us always had a beater full-length wilder boat, you know, laying around the yard to take down that run. And I just don't see those around that much anymore, you know? I don't see Yeah, that. I mean, I mean, what was your ratio of upper yacht runs in your wild water boat to like hours spent doing repairs, you know? I mean, could you get one run without having to patch your boat? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had it pretty wired. If you made a, if you could, you made a catastrophic mistake, you'd have to put a patch in there. But I don't know, three or four. Then you have to put, you have to, you know, dock up to the bottom a little bit. How, how many stern hits on an average wild water boat run on the upper yacht? <laughs> six. All of them. <laughs> there, there were six mandatory stern hits in the full length. <laughs> But there is nothing more exciting than being on a on a fifteen foot downriver boat going down the upper yacht at like full speed. That's, I got a that's uh, like best feelings. I got like a, a satellite phone text message from Jeff Calhoun yesterday. Him and Andrew yeah. and the rest of the boys were getting ready to hike into the North Fork of the San Joaquin, but first they needed to know what happened to the upper yacht race. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andrew McEwen's probably the last person I could think of that took a full-length last boat, and Calhoun, I know, has raced those too. Yeah. But the thing is, you'd show up, and if no one else has one, you're the only person with a boat, you're going to save it. You know? You just put it back on the roof and take your green boat or wave hopper. Right. But anyway, so Ian, Ian also had... Uh, I, I think a, a weekend. I mean, he's Ian Van Stoutmeister is coming into his own uh, in, the, in, in this area. What happened to Grace? Phones are ringing off the hook at amongst at world headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> Expect to hear like some, uh, you know, some operators in the background. <laughs> <laughs> amongst amongst enterprises, how can I help you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, can I can we uh, pick up where I left off here? We're I'm not just, interrupting anything, are we? I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry guys. the help around here. <laughs> anyway, Ian 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 uh, Winger is uh, I I have to make a, a, a couple I have to make a shout out to Ian. It's sort of a mini rave because first of all, he came across this woman. We could talk about this in a minute about the. Uh, grab that bitch technique versus versus the rescue rope but he came across a woman at uh uh rapid called uh, lost or found it has it has a more r-rated name but we'll just call it lost and found and she was pinned up against a tree and i guess there was a dozen or so people kind of standing around at the bank with throw up staring at her and her head was just barely out of the water and she was starting to roll upstream and ian jumped out and used the uh, grab that bitch technique and pulled her off the, the tree for what i understand it was pretty harrowing i don't want to say that he saved her life because i didn't see it but that's, a, that's the kind of language people were throwing around when I heard about it. Uh, then he went on to win the upper yacht race on Saturday and then <sighs> ran the Blackwater in the high 600s on Sunday. And I know people talk about how they've run the Blackwater at 7,800. I know that they're lying, too. There is a couple of people who've run it pushing 700, at least purposefully. And he can put his name on that list. It is not an easy thing to do. Um, now I bet you some people from, from Hood River can come out here and run that thing at high water but i'm just saying as it, as it stands you went out and charged at high water and it's it's pushy so it's quite a week yeah for ian. Man, and, and another shout out for ian he's putting on these weekly race series here on the on the lower yacht 
and it's every Wednesday, and he's getting huge participation from RAF guides. It's an ongoing point series, and every week is a different format. The winner from the previous week gets to choose a type of race for the next week. So it could be a slalom race, could be a downward race, could be a taining race, could be whatever. So, Sick. Uh, a lot right of stuff down. going on. Right there on you. Go. Right. He was, he was mentioning the other day that I'm always sort of knocking him, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That, well, those, those are your most positive comments about anything or anyone ever, man. You can't complain now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That will, that may never happen again on this show. Right. I quit. I'm done. Ian for president. Thank you. I think a whole new John Weld this week too. So Otto, do you have winning times? Do you have winning times for the uh, for the race this year? What was Ian's time? It was thirty. It was thirty something. Ian won 30, by like 30. a long way, didn't he? He beat Beeks, who's in a wave hopper. Which I found to be surprising. By like 30 seconds or something. I'm going to say it was mid-30s. Hmm. Um, Zabel, Roger Zabel, as far as I know, and, and Calhoun may have beat this, but Roger Zabel, I think, has the record at about 27 and a half. And that's in a, in a full-length class, you know, DR boat. So that's the difference a fast boat will make out there. But let's segue into that video you sent about the life jacket versus the grab-that-bitch technique. Because I think this is an important discussion. Okay, yeah. So, well, tell us about the video I sent over to you. What did you see? Well, you sent two videos, right? You sent one video was a promotional video for a rescue vest with a tether on it. And then you also sent what I'd consider to be the definitive LVM safety video, which was Jason Hale talking about the grab that bitch technique. Uh, which is where basically, and this works well on the East Coast. I'm not too super familiar with West Coast paddling, but someone's stuck on a rock. You pull your boat out as close as you can, whether it be on a rock in the middle of the river or on the bank, and you jump out of your boat and you grab hold of that person, which is exactly what Ian did here on the upper. And you pull that person out. And having used that technique dozens and dozens of times before in various herring situations, I can't think of a better way to rescue somebody than that. I Very rarely do you can you beat that. Yeah, and I went, I on, like went on to think, and I went on to think to myself, have I ever been in a situation where a tether on a life jacket has either been assistance to me or another paddler? And I can't think of any. And before I make pass judgment on that, I want to make sure I'm I'm not the only one who feels that way. The only time a tether on a jacket has ever been good to clip onto a boat with no one in it and get it to shore. That's not to say that like live bait and things like that. Are not a good, good option for it, but yeah. I mean, I guess that's what I'm thinking of is the the live bait. I think I think it has its place. I think that that's. I mean, do you guys paddle with tethers when you're doing harder, harder, harder whitewater? Like a tow tether or just the yeah. like the rescue harness? I guess I guess I have one built in my PFD, but I really don't even know that it's there. You know, I don't think I've ever used mine, but. I've heard of a few times when people have used it in like very, you know, life or death situations. And I've a, never a, used a harness or a tether, a harness. And I've never used, I've never used a tow tether, but, and people have a lot of strong opinions about whether you should ever use one. Like a lot of people say you should never, you know, never clip onto a boat that way because, you know, like for example, somebody died on dinky a few years ago trying to pull a boat into an eddy after one of the throw and go portages and got dragged into a sieve. And it's right. sort of like the opinion is like, it's never worth onto a boat that way. Although I think that is it. 
but what sort of changed my opinion on it is I've heard a couple, at least one example of somebody pulling out an unconscious swimmer that way. And that's, you know, a time when, yeah, it's dangerous to clip onto somebody in that situation, but you know, it's worth the risk then. Right. Yeah. Well said. So I think, Grace, that's, what do you think? I think that, uh, I think more of the point here is that a, a, a tether can have its place, but the point is when something's going down, if you're more than, I mean, you know, there's never, situations change from time to time, but if there's not enough time to, to, to worry about getting an anchor and getting someone in position and getting your rope set up and whatever, like when you're in a situation like that, you have to act right then. You, you literally, unless someone's right there who can clip right into you or you have some kind of very clear path that that would help you that's super clear in your head you know you've got a minute you know you've got 60 seconds you know you've got to act and that's why i think that the and it seems like it's hardly ever taught you know the proverbial grab that bitch technique but it's all of us i mean that is the defining thing when you're in a real rescue situation Right. I mean, you can use a Z-drag for boat extraction if something's pinned, you know, it's all kind of, but those aren't like the life-saving situations. Yeah, I agree. It's like, grab that bitch as plan A. And it's like, I think I see so I often pl- you see... I think it's plan A through C or D. Yeah, it's like so you know? often you see something happening in the river and there's people, you know, sort of standing around scratching their heads. And it's like what John was just saying. It's like, act quickly. Just like, it, don't overthink it. Like, you don't need some convoluted rope system like just go grab that bitch you know so let me ask you let me ask you a question right so and i've always like in a larger sense like how do certain like i get the feeling that certain safety techniques get sort of canonized regardless of statistical data you know like on one hand um you know, we've all heard don't stand up in whitewater. And you talk about like in the lower yacht, that's probably the one piece of advice that's most repeated in raft companies over and over again, don't stand up in whitewater because you're fear of a foot entrapment, you know? And that goes back as far as I can remember, where I remember being in canoe club, you know, safety classes when I was 12 and people screaming at you not to stand up in whitewater because it's basically a death sentence. But foot entrapments are unbelievably rare. You know, I mean, I can't think, I mean, I know it's happened in lower yacht, but that's by far not the most common reason for someone drowning. But on the other hand, you look at things like, remember those breather apparatuses that people, you could attach your life jacket and you could actually breathe for a few minutes? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's that could actually save a life. I could put a tangible, you know, half dozen incidents where that could save someone's life, but that never caught on. You know, what what happens that these things, some things catch on and some things don't in terms of safety on the river? Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. Lewis? I don't Am I know, I mean, get sued for discussing this? No, I mean, I, I, like, I, I, like, part of me wants to attribute it to you know what people get taught in like swift water rescue classes, but I'm not sure to be honest that all that many people have actually had sort of formal swift water rescue training. Um, I don't know. Let's get into a little viewer mail. Oof. <laughs> I want to go straight into Larry Boothby. So Larry Boothby. Larry Boothby, yeah. <laughs> Larry Boothby, he's, uh, he's wrote into the Hammer Factor several times, had a lot of uh, yes. good insight and comments. He's written and, into IR, as it turns out, as well. Yeah, and so recently a uh, uh, Hammer Factor loyal listener, uh, Larry, Booth, Luth, Larry Boothby, had a comment um, 
sent into, this was not a Hammer Factor comment, this was an immersion research comment. John, do you have that in front of you? Uh, I don't have, well, yeah, I, actually, I think I do. Um, and first of all, I just want to say to Larry Boothby, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for this. So Larry writes, I was, writing to, I was writing to express my dissatisfaction with the branding on your dry, semi-dry gear. The great big immersion research on the upper chest collar area is horrible. I like your gear and have several pieces, but this is enough to make me look elsewhere for gear. Thanks for your time. So, uh, and to be perfectly fair, I, you know, I actually like to get this kind of feedback as how else do we tweak our garments. But uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think it's a big aesthetic mistake putting the IR there? Where is he talking about? Is he talking about on, on the neck? neck. On, on the neck. On the neck piece. We put the immersion research right there. I mean, it's really like, it's, it kind of calls to mind this, uh, this Jackson Nirvana conversation for me, right? It's like you make pretty good gear, but it's just so uncool that nobody, nobody wants their name, your name plastered across them, you know? It's like if I show right. up at the put in with an IR dry top, they might make me put in on the other side of the river. People might not want to paddle with me. I mean, the mandate I give our <laughs> Skip out on shuttle. I mean, there's no telling what can happen to you. But I tell these guys, I'm like, listen, we need to have our name on the garments. And it'd be nice if there's a picture of our garment in a magazine or a website or something that you can see that it's an IR garment. But I don't want it to look like a NASCAR race. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to have the branding go over the top. So let me ask you two guys a question. Yay or nay on the neck silkscreen? Or not, don't care. Doesn't, doesn't factor in either way. I think it's okay. I mean, I'm trying to hate on it right now, but I just, I'm not really hating on it. I'm cool with it too, but I'm, I'm an IR loyalist. You know, mm. if I were, if I were buying it and it were some brand I felt less passionate about, maybe it would bother me. I don't know. Mm. I don't know either. I think it's okay. <laughs> think about that. You know, maybe put like a Larry Boothby trademark on it or something. <laughs> Love you, Larry. <laughs> I think there's probably a way we can take that off Larry's, too. I think you can just solve it and that ink will come off. <laughs> Let's do Maybe that. you could get some sort of, like, custom custom something on there, like prison neck tattoo style. <laughs> yeah, like Curr Thug Life. Currently, like there's a, currently, guys, in Pisgah National Forest, there is a guy with one of those tattoos running through the forest, stealing mountain bikes and holding people at gunpoint. They got all of Pisgah Forest shut down, like a full... In Craziness. Speaking of in the in the tattoo world, that's actually called a yeah. neck blaster. If you want to know the term, <laughs> we have a, we have a guy here at IR who's into tattoos, and he explained uh, that to me. It's a, a neck blaster. Uh, more viewer so, mail. Larry, so Larry, I didn't I didn't answer your email because I figure you just hear it right from here. There you go. There you go. What are you gonna do? Are you? Gonna I will get... seriously. I, I we anytime we get a comment that passionate. I definitely take it up with the designers and you know and people here at IR and ask ask everyone what they think because I you know a lot of times we just we're so used to seeing these things we really don't take a, take a step back and look at it and we may realize yeah that's really been played and we need to move on so yeah it it, it makes a difference um, we got a comment about um, comment on consumption from Jason McNaughton. Now, what does this some Brit ask about a PFD attached to a CAG? Okay, more amusing. Here's, here's the CAG gentleman. 
Um, more musings from my brain dustbin. A number of episodes back was mentioned that IR decided it was too dangerous to make a CAG with an integrated PFD. However, Peak UK now makes CAG decks. And to be clear, people in UK refer to a, a, a jacket as a CAG. Peak UK now makes CAG decks with built-in uh, flotation for slalom use in the form of Peak's Racer ST. I'd imagine such things would be useful for freestyle as well. Um, Desire still think it's a bad idea. Uh, so he's talking about, you know, a life jacket and a, a jacket combined, right? Um, so let's break it down. Lewis, you haven't been around long enough, but back in the 80s, I'm talking the early 80s, before there was a lot of regulation at solemn races, we had these things called uh, life decks. And it was a spray skirt PFD combination. It was a big block of foam that went between your legs. And you didn't have to wear a life jacket. Remember those things? I don't. I actually remember Ryan Bond and I arriving at that idea on our own and thinking it would be really cool. And then someone telling us that that had already existed like 10 years ago and that it was not yeah. permissible to race yeah. in it. And if I'm not mistaken, I think I raced it. I raced in like the 1981 Wausau Junior Champ. Championships, <laughs> national junior championships in Washington, Wisconsin, with one of those. But anyway, that takes takes us back there. So um, there's a, there's a bunch of issues why we don't do this. The first one, and really this is the most the most practical one, is that the the thing is, if you put a life jacket onto a onto a dry top, um, you're going to make a very expensive piece of gear that can only be worn in one tip one kind of condition. You know what I mean? It's much better to accessorize those pieces so you can wear your shorty with your life jacket, your draw top with your life jacket, your dry with your life jacket. You don't have to shell out $800 every single time you want to get a new garment with a life jacket attached to it. Um, people would rather accessorize those things. That's the same reason we don't put elbow pads built into to dry tops as well is because some people want it, some people don't. Some people have ones that they love, some people don't. And some people want to pay for that extra amount. Um, the second thing is is that in the UK, they have a different standard. They have CE approval for life jackets, which is a lot less stringent than, than Coast Guard approval in the US. So uh, PQK is, has a different set of standards for that. And IR is not really equipped to make life jackets anyway um, because it's extremely expensive to do that here in the US. And it's almost prohibitive for new manufacturers to get into that business. So... Probably more of an answer than you wanted, but that's that's the long and short of it. I agree with that answer. Yeah, but the big thing is, is you can't you can't make you can't unifying all this gear makes it too expensive for the consumer. It's not flexible enough. You know, the dry deck is probably as far out as we go. We attach a skirt to a jacket, and even that, we only sell a handful of those a year because people don't want to commit to that piece of garment. That garment, you know, is a so most of them go out to people getting with pro deals or better. Anyhow. Do we want to get into Josh's comment? I mean, I think it's a great comment. I, I pass it to Lewis first. You guys ready? Wait on me. Um, love the show. My comments and questions have to do with kayaking relationship with toxic chemicals and the amount we kayakers consume. Earlier show, Weld was raving about his trusty MRO's MSR stove, and Lewis chimed in about how consumptive the isobutane jet boil type stoves are. That got me thinking that even though they can recycle those fuel bottles, using those are certainly more consumptive than refilling a white gas stove. Our lives are full of opportunities to attempt to make better choices to lower our carbon footprint, but it's hard to balance that as a kayaker. We often drive a ton, burn through 
gear made on the other side of the world. Do you have any examples of choices you've made to avoid unnecessary consumption or waste in regards to getting on and off the river? Question mark. When you guys interviewed Corin, he mentioned his manufacturing process in China was only possible because of their lower environmental regulations. I'd like to know. What are the biggest environmental offending materials used in whitewater? Where are those made? How does the negative impact of manufacturing boats and gear sit with you guys who both promote the sport hoping it will grow and work to protect the environment here in the U.S. to maintain our boating opportunities? Aren't we just keeping the blinders on with regards to our impacts? I'm imagine factories in China and Vietnam dumping toxic, toxic stuff into local rivers and sending it straight to the ocean. As an addicted boater, my habit outweighs the consequences, but I'd like to hear how you guys feel about it. Thanks again for the podcast. I just signed up for Outdoor Alliance, filed my comments about public lands to Zinke and Trump, and made my first donation. Thanks, Lewis. Sir, yeah, that's, that's, awesome. that's a big that's statement. A right email. There's a lot, of, lot to go through right there. I even... Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I definitely think about, I mean, I, this is just sort of a personal answer, not an Outdoor Alliance answer, but I, you know, I think about consumption and trying to be, you know, trying to support businesses or products that are aiming to do things in a new way. I think it's cool what Patagonia does in terms of trying to innovate and make that, you know, environmental innovation available to other companies. But at the same time, to me, you know, there's not anything that you can do as an individual, as a consumer, that's actually going to make a difference. Like it just doesn't matter. Like one person, whether you drive to the river or not, it's not going to solve climate change. And the only way that we're going to be able to make any difference on anything is if we all do it together. And the way that we engage in that sort of collective decision-making and decide that we're going to, you know, take on some level of sacrifice and have it actually become meaningful because we're all going to do it is through our politics, right? It's like we have to enact policies that sort of formalize that collective decision that we're going to take these things seriously. And that means like passing regulations about toxic chemicals or, you know, addressing climate change in an economy wide way. And so to me, the answer has to be something collective. There's no level of sort of like individual virtue that's going to solve the problem. I don't know. That's how I feel about it. But, you know, I mean, politics come to, come to, come to pass because of cultural changes, you know, and how people think about things and how they address, you know, everyday experiences. I mean, you just look at, you know, transgender rights, you know, this was something that wasn't even discussed 20 years ago, but just the culture is changing and people are thinking differently about that. And it's become a real issue now. Um, I think similarly, I think if everybody slowly is forced from all sides to really be thinking about their choices as consumers, that's how the politics come to pass. You know, because yeah, it becomes I think that's a point. Less, it's, it's less of something you talk about once every month, but it's every single time you do something, you're reminded of the, of the consumer impact of that, you know? Yeah. So as sure. an outdoor enthusiast, we need to remind people that there's certainly good consumption and there's bad consumption out there, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. I think I maybe overstated my feelings about that a little bit. I think you're right that it is important to sort of recognize that, you know, you can't change 
human nature, right? Like you can't change that people are going to want to do what they're going to want to do. And so, you know, like there's however, you know, a billion people in China who want to live like Americans and you can't tell them that that's illegitimate or that they don't want to do that. And so having sort of the, you know, the people who are technologists or the people who are providing the products that enable that lifestyle be cognizant of those impacts, I think, is really important because if there is going to be some big solution to all of our environmental problems, it is, you're right, it is going to be driven just as much by, you know, technology and business as it is by government. So, yeah, you're right. No, it's fair. So, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a consumption, doing what we do, you, you can't, you know, here at IR, we can't avoid worrying about it you know what i mean because we, we do travel to southeast asia to, and it's an issue for sure and i think you know yvonne chenard <clears throat> rings his hands immensely about this problem you know um i, I mean ir's response is that, is that we don't we don't care we're just there and if it pollutes it pollutes we're just there to make a buck <laughs> so. <laughs> no i so i mean and this is not an advertisement for IR because there's many companies who do the same thing, but we've we've decided to make te- very technical whitewater gear, which is expensive and hard to make. And, you know, in people's expectations are these things last for a long time. And we have a repair staff in here whose sole job is to keep this stuff around for as long as possible. Uh, I, you know, I I hate to bring up SUP again, but I think one of the one of the problems you know, you have with bigger companies in this industry is that is that you know they start going towards the cheapest, fastest sale they possibly can make. And you look at you sit on tops or SUP, you know, or whatever plastic junk, you know, these big roller molders are making it, selling them at at Costco. I mean, I would really argue that that's a questionable consumer decision. You know what I mean? They're 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 buying a two or three hundred dollar piece of plastic that probably won't get used that much, and there's really no reason. It just doesn't justify its existence. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I can't. You can't hold against a guy who wants to spend two hundred bucks on a on a sit on top or a, a, a you know recreational kayak that's going to use it every day of the year. And Lord knows that the things going to be around for a hundred years in some form or another, or thousands of years in some form or another. But so many of those things simply do not get used. And I think it's bordering irresponsible, you know. And as an industry, I think we really should be careful about that kind of stuff. I mean, we've we've made a very conscious decision not to make cheap disposable gear. And although we could, and we probably, you know, could make a lot of money doing it, it's just not where we are as a company, you know. So that's one thing. In terms of materials, he was asking about. I mean, everything we do, for the most part, with one notable exception, is Blue Sign uh, uh, authorized or. Uh, certified um our fabrics are made in very you know environmentally responsible places in taiwan which is a, you know a, a superior place to get excellent raw materials um and our factories we use do a great job putting these together putting these things together in a responsible way the one exception is neoprene uh neoprene is a disaster um you know the people we use to make neoprene they do better jobs of it and there's all sorts of alternatives out there but the problem is, is that as long as manufacturers like Jackson Kayak keep making a thousand different size rims, we have to keep using neoprene. Because as of yet, and we've been trying for a long time, all of us, to find a material that works as well as neoprene. Nothing will stretch to fit as many rims as we have to fit as uh, as neoprene will allow. Um, if you were to make one size rims, could make 
we could make much more durable materials for skirts that would last considerably longer. You could make a plastic skirt that feels on a boat like a Tupperware lid. No one's willing to do that right now because it'd be too expensive to make the tool because Lord knows the rim's going to change in a year or so. Um, but if you want to look for a real problem that we need to work on in industry, it's neoprene. And for us, making two standard size rims would fix that. And I know we're going to talk about this in a minute with Annual's comment uh, about a rim size, um, but that would help tremendously and save consumers a lot of money. Dig it. That's a big question. Josh has got a big question. He's got some valid points in there. and I mean, but, I you should, but, but he's right. You should look for gear that's like the MSR stove that was designed to last for as long as possible. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? You buy one of them, it lasts, it lasts for a decade or more, you know? Good one, Josh. I'm going to have to roll, roll, you know, keep thinking about that one. Yeah, that's, boy, you could, I could talk about that for hours. Yeah, that's a big one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bite my tongue, but I could keep going and going on that one. Real quick before we move on. So Annie says, you know, working on a boat, they wanted that, you know, what are the best cockpit sizes? Obviously consulted the hammer factor. So tell us about your two cockpit sizes and why the, that should be the definitive cockpit size. Let's just throw it out there to the public. All, All right, let's talk, let's talk about makes boats, a, a good, let's talk about making a good cockpit, what a perfect cockpit room is. A perfect cockpit room is circular, right? It's flat and circular. Um, because you could put a bungee around the thing, it would pull in equally from all sides. You know what I mean? You make the cockpit 90 inches circumference, you make the bungee 80 inches circumference, it pulls it in tight around sides, would be perfect. The longer you make, the longer you make that, more elongated you make that that shape, the worse it gets. So you take like the old burn rim, which is very long and very narrow, has very long straight edges on the side. That's a bad choice for a rim because they fl- the skirt will just flop around and there is no tension pulling underneath the rim. Subsequently, people buy a burn, they get a skirt, they, they see the boat leaks, and they immediately call us and blame us for the leaky boat um, because their skirt's leaking. Um, I would re- you know point out that the rim may be to blame. That could be a difficult pill to swallow if you just bought a boat. Um, Similarly, sometimes people put these big knee bumps on playboats uh, where the deck is concave, you know, it curves around your knees. Skirts will bridge across that. If you look under the rim and the rim is curved like this, a spray skirt will bridge right across that that curve uh, and water puller in there. I mean, a second grader could look at that and be like, yeah, that's going to leak. Um, but yet, boat manufacturers do. So you want a flat, circular rim. Now, I realize you can't have a circular rim in a, in a whitewater boat, so what you want is you want sort of an, uh, an oblong or an egg shape that's wide enough that allows a gentle curve to the front, right? And with no, no or very little, you know, thigh or knee bumps. Um, as much as I bust on Jackson, Jackson pays close attention to this in the big sense, in the sense that they, they strive for that. They just make a thousand variations of this. But the best rim out there to date in terms of shape was the All-Star. It was 34 inches wide, including the rim, uh, I'm sorry, 34 inches long, including the rim, 19, 19, or I'm sorry, 20 inches wide, including the rim that offered the exact right length and width for the gentle curve. It was not so far in front of you that you couldn't reach around and put the skirt on in front because the last few inches are always hard to put on. Um, once again, with a burn, that's 36 inches. That's a huge reach in front of you. Um, so that makes a 91-ish inch circumference rim. When you get into these rims that are 100 inches in circumference, and some of these bigger whitewater boats uh, have these things. These rims are like open sails. There's no way you're going to keep a skirt on that boat. There's Anytime the boat gets the compression, the skirt's going to come flying off that thing. You fight it with all these complicated RAND designs and stuff like that, but there's no reason to make a 100-inch circumference rim on a whitewater boat, period. I don't care how big you are. 
you can get your legs into a into a 92 inch rim if it's it's off the deck of the, the bottom of the boat enough um so i would look to the jackson rim in terms of portions and i would make one that's somewhere in the 88 inch range for smaller people and make one that's somewhere in the 92 inch range maybe 93 inch range for the bigger people period bam done bam <laughs> and keep the proportions exactly the same and don't put big knee bumps in it and you know what you'll have a perfectly dry boat or very close to dry boat <laughs> all right so for okay so i sent you over a video of jessica fox racing a c1 uh, t- tell us about that what were your what did you think about that john uh well it was a it was jessica fox who's a you know the daughter of two extremely accomplished probably the most accomplished collectively whitewater slalom racers in the world am i right lewis richard fox and uh miriam Jerusalami. Yeah, um, both legends of the 80s. Um, Richard Fox was, you know, the greatest men's kayak racer of his day, like in terms of results and also in terms of influence. And I don't know if you could say that Miriam Jusalami was necessarily quite there in terms of being influential, but she was also, you know, multiple world champion and in their own right for sure excellent yeah excellent and, her, and the and uh the daughter is no is no uh, slack either she's like maybe like on track to surpass both of them i would say right yeah incredible power and she races not only kayak but she races women's c1 now correct me if i'm wrong with this women's c1 is a relatively new new thing they brought that on when the olympics required parity with men's to women's events right that's right so it was an unusual, I mean, C1, I mean, to be fair, is an unusual sport to begin with. Um, well, to have a women's C1 was even more esoteric. I think that C1, you know, its roots obviously come from open canoeing. And so there, you know, I think 30 years ago, there were a lot of people who came into paddling whitewater you know, directly from family canoe trips or whatever and going into paddling a closed canoe seemed like just as reasonable of a decision as getting into a kayak did. And it was probably the kayak that seemed esoteric. So, you know, even though it seems sort of strange to us now, I think that it has historical roots that, you know, why reasons why it makes sense. Like maybe it's, maybe it's like teleskiing, right? Like it seems sort of like a fringe weird thing to do now, but when you go back, you know, 40 or 50 years, the reasons why that discipline exists make more sense in terms of the historic arc of the sport. But so here's the question I have. Should we get, I mean, should we just get rid of C1? I mean, is it just enough already with a C1? I mean, we've long since left the canoe roots of the sport. I mean, I, no. I, I lived through that era. I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of our connection to canoeing. And I remember open canoes and OC1s and C1s being super relevant. Um, but no manufacturer makes a C1 anymore, right? The only way yeah. to get a C1 now is to get a kayak and, and rip the seat out and put a pedestal in. Well, to paddle plastic. And I mean, I think that it is, it's definitely, I feel like this conversation quickly becomes intertwined with the degree to which slalom has uh, alienated itself from the rest of the sport. But, you know, if you watch the C1s, I mean, it is spectacular paddling. I mean, those guys are so sick. And 
you know, when the women's C1 class started less than 10 years ago, it was, it was not so pretty. And the progression there is like mind blowing, you know, like watch that video of Jessica Fox's, what is it like the U23 worlds or something like that, where that run was from. And like, she's sick, man. Like, I don't know. I am. Is it a parlor trick? I mean, could you imagine a situation where a C1 makes more sense than a whitewater river than a kayak? <laughs> no, but who cares? I mean, none of it makes any sense, right? It's all just for fun. I mean, just play devil's advocate because I used to paddle. I had a C1 and I used to race slalom C1 back in the day, but just play devil's advocate here. I mean, I could see with a kayak, there is some rivers that you're not going to be able to navigate unless you're in a kayak, right? Kayaks are like skis. Oh, Dennis almost won the North Fork race in a C1 a year ago. Kayak- but kayaks are like, but that's by, by part of the exception. Kayaks are like skis, right? C1s are like taking one ski off, being like, look, I'm still almost as good with one ski. And you're like... It's like telly, or it's like, you know... like No, because telly has a practical purpose. You or know like I mean? single speeding. Or like, I don't know, it's just something that... Should we get rid of single speeding in terms of an event on bikes? I, I would rather get rid of single speeding than c one <laughs> C1 is a great transition to paddleboarding. <laughs> John, John Grace puts the final nail in the coffin of C1ing. <laughs> uh, I've got some good friends who just, they love to go paddling. They just hate sitting in a kayak. So at least I C1. think SUP is a, is a, and so they paddle C1. C1ing, you know, like I thought there was a big controversy about for SUP racing when everybody realized that like high kneel, like they do for sprint C1 is so much more efficient than actually standing up on the board. And so all this, the, uh, the suppers freaked out and were like, you can't put your knee down. You have to stand up because otherwise if it were just a race, <laughs> it would just be like high kneeling and crush everybody. <laughs> Oh, you know, I get, you know, as a, you know, for at at the Green River Games, for instance, in the Enduro, we sort of got to the point where we had to kind of say, uh-uh, no more classes. We had to get rid of the single speed class as an event organizer. I mean, you just can't include every little niche, you know, so there's some point to just getting rid of C1 and just being like, hey, go do your C1, but we're not going to have an event with it. But that's I don't know, man. Go watch some Slum World Cup videos of those guys paddling C1. I, I don't think you're going to be like, we should get rid of this. I think you're going to be like, these guys are amazing. Yeah, I'm not taking anything away from anybody who paddles C1. I got a lot of... No, good, it's an amazing accomplishment. Good. It's just, an odd, it's just to me, it's an odd aspect of the sport, you know? Why aren't they in canoes? It's uncomfortable. Because with a canoe, at least you can put a ton of gear in it, you know, if you're going on a lake or whatever. But C1's uncomfortable. You have a terrible offside, you know? I mean, they do almost as many cross draws as they do forward strokes. But just like, I don't know, it's been so influential on kayaking too. Like, I don't think that kayaking would be where it was at, where it is now without C1ing, you know? I mean, I think that the C1s, especially in the 80s, were such a big influence on the kayak class. And like, you learn to do things on one side in the same way that the C1s do to kind of like work on the inside all the time. And well, I don't Stern's know. I think there's still C1s yeah. originally. What if you? Yeah, what if? What, what if you're on your knees with a kayak? Pack? Well, I think kayaking should say thank you, and we should just cut them loose. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, guys, we're Thanks over. The hate mail let the hate mail, Back to John let, Wells. Let, let the hate mail begin. <laughs> I, I knew you could only go so far on this this kind or gentler John Wells <laughs> and the apology to your hand for so long. 
<laughs> I, listen, I'm taking this attitude just to spark conversation. I have no no particular animosity towards C1 paddlers. Uh, I will say it's, it's always struck me as something. It's, it's, <laughs> they need to go. But I'll leave it at that. All right, guys. Time for our favorite section of the show. This is where we rant or rave on something that either makes us feel good or makes us feel bad. John, you said you had a rant or rave. We'll start off with you. Yeah, so we're coming up to Kids Camp Week this week. We have a we have a stellar crew uh, paddling uh, paddling all week, camping out, tearing it up. We have Hillicky. The Hillicky boys are back in town. Uh, Kr and Daniel, uh, my own kids, Aiden and Asher, are paddling. And then you, you guys know Force Noble. Yep. Oh yeah, Force Noble. His kids out here, and uh, it's gonna be. It's going to be an epic week. I can assure you of that. Um, yeah, which got me thinking about kids' boats and the best kids' kayak out there. If you're like a 12-year-old or say 7-year-old or 12-year-old under 120 pounds, the best kids' boat out there is the Remix 47, yeah. period. So you could not beat that as a kid's boat. Why is that? What the Dagger Blast? The problem, I'll tell you, a boat that's not a good kid's boat that I see quite often are those Jackson Fun 1s and Fun 1.5s. And, um, and I, I hate to sound like I'm busting on Jackson this whole episode because uh, that's just, I just don't, I don't, I don't feel that way about Jackson at all. Um, but they're so prevalent and there's stuff everywhere, you, you can't help running into them at some point or another sooner or later. Anyway, the problem with these Fun 1 and Fun one and a half is that if you have an 8-year-old who happens to be looping at Rock Island, great boat. <laughs> right <laughs> but there's only one of those that was dane and or there may, okay maybe not one but there's about 10 of those the rest of the kids are just hitting any lines and power flipping as they're trying to learn how to boat <laughs> right and they don't track and no one no eight-year-old learning out of a kayak knows how to surf and, and flat spin it's pointless it's just an aggravation and teaching kids how to kayak in those boats drives me crazy cray cray uh but um, I've been constantly impressed with the performance of those Remix 47s. So if you have kids who are paddling, that's my pick. That's my rave. Very good. Very good. Well, I'll jump right. in here. Okay. Um, I believe I've raved about this river before, but I'm going to rave about it again. The Nolachucky River. You guys ever paddled the Nolachucky? Yeah, I have. Okay. So... I paddled the Nolichucky a lot to about 2,500 is kind of my low level, but I went up there for this travel channel thing to do to film some paddleboarders out on the Nolichucky. And the level was, I don't know what the level was, 600 CFS, 500 CFS, um, pretty low. But I had some time. I was behind a camera. I was sitting in one place for a while. I got up high from the river a little bit, and... The rapids were all still really good. They, they, it was a lot of bedrock. It looked, if you, if you just kind of narrowed down and got rid of the vegetation, it looked like a high Sierra River with, the, with, with all of the rock in there. And I'm just going to rave about the, the, the Nolichucky River. No dams and just, uh, just a killer place to go hang out on the river. Now I got a question for you guys out of that rave. Do you think there is a, a sort of an initiative going around of designating a section of the Nolichucky River as wild and scenic, um, like a 15-mile section there in the gorge, but it has a railroad track on one side? 
What do you guys feel about a river that had wild and scenic designation but had a railroad track? Well, you're going to cut out about 80% of the rivers, and <laughs> certainly out west, you take the railroad track. Um, Make the railroad track take consideration. So I, I think one of the really cool things about the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act is that you can use it to protect rivers that have development impact already. And that's something that a lot of those protected designations don't have. Like that would preclude wilderness designation just on the terms of the Wilderness Act. But the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, you can protect a section of river for its recreational value. And so even, you know, it can be, it's actually wild and scenic. Within the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, designated rivers can be wild rivers, scenic rivers, or recreational rivers. And so you can protect a river because it has this awesome recreational value, and that can include all these sort of scenic attributes that make that place what it is, even though it has you know some existing impacts. So to me, that's something that's super cool about the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act and something that, I don't know, we talked super briefly earlier about that piece of legislation I was working on, but that's something that we we're kind of trying to model that bill after a little bit or that attribute of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act is you can take these places that, you know, just because it's not 100% pristine, it doesn't mean that it's not still worth protecting. So I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's important. Have you guys ever heard of Irwin or anything about Irwin? Sure. What do you know about Irwin, John? I, I drive through it on the way to the Asheville from West Virginia. Yeah. So anyway, the one thing, <laughs> so that town. <laughs> I know all about it. <laughs> it's a big railroad track. There's a CSX railroad that's been there for 100 years. And it's, it's basically the outlet of the Appalachians there into northeast Tennessee. Well, for 100 years, that railroad has been running. All of a sudden, no warning, nothing like that. CSX, CSX said, we're, we're, we're done using this railroad. No warning to the town of Irwin, to a lot of people. So it was just gone. And so there's been this push amongst people in that community to, because the Appalachian Trail goes right through there, the Nolichuckies there, to really kind of bolster this kind of gateway to the mountains from northeast Tennessee uh, through there. There was this group that called Rise Irwin that did some work in there, and they've been trying for a long time to really get this kind of outdoor destination town going. And it wasn't until this railroad actually one day just shut down that they've decided to do that. Now there's all this kind of economic input and kind of these initiatives to kind of build that area up. And That's cool, man. It's cool to see people getting that there's this economic benefit to you know, protecting wild places, right? It's like they're seeing that this is something that can be done. It's not shutting down industry, you know, local community. And now, and now the big SUPs in town. I mean, yeah, the right. Travel channel. <laughs> uh, you, what you really need is a brewery. The brewery is definitely the tip of the spear of mountain town gentrification. Right. Or <laughs> just. So anyway, back to what I was saying, the only thing that Irwin was known for before this period was, and you guys may have heard this story, that's where they hung an elephant. <laughs> I, think, I think they should keep doing that. That's gold. Are you kidding? Oh, <laughs> God. Have you never heard of this? Nothing, nothing puts asses in seats more than a good old elephant hanging. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> a good old fashioned. <laughs> oh man <laughs> wow <laughs> elephant hanging this exit 
next hanging? <laughs> 2 p.m. <laughs> Hold on just a second. <laughs> the, okay, the elephant's name was... <laughs> This is great. This, this town is still trying to live down the, the sin of its elephant hanging. Exactly. It happened in 1916. The, the elephant was named Mary. And it trampled somebody at the zoo in Johnson City. And Johnson City didn't have a crane big enough to hang the elephant, so they brought it to Irwin. And so, and so what we're doing... Here, God, that's terrific. That could be the that could be the brew like hanging elephant brew works or something, <laughs> right? <sighs> to break. Oh god! <laughs> Spitballing here. Let's let's run with this. I'm done with you guys. <laughs> I <think> I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> and that's my rave. Louis, <laughs> <laughs> you got you got to turn us around here and shut us down. So I, can hit, so I can hit stop. Give me, give me something here. I got nothing. <laughs> you gotta have something. We've been preparing for this for like a month, right? <laughs> uh, I'm gonna rave about the ladies' show. They did a great job. They it was did awesome a great to job. not have to talk to you guys for a few weeks. That's really much. <laughs> I want to apologize right now to the elephant community for any <laughs> remark that may have made. <laughs> uh, what's the title of this episode? Should be John Weld makes amends. <laughs> oh God! See, this is what happens when I'm getting pulled in two different two different directions. Everything um, goes off the rails. Oh my God, dude! Where was I going with my notes? <laughs> you ended up talking about hanging elephants. <laughs> Well, once again, thanks for listening to the Hammer Factor. <laughs> Next week, we got a uh, outdoor retail show. Um, yeah. All right, see you in a couple more. days, Lewis. Yeah, sounds good, man. I All look right. forward to it, as always. <laughs> All, right. All right, much love. See you guys. Peace out.